If you haven't already, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we'll be coming back to verses 20 to 25. We started studying this section last week. We're going to enhance it. We're going to do some study in the book of Acts, so you're going to want to keep a marker here, and then also going to be going back to the book of Acts. If you uh, are visiting with us, know that we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians for some time now, and we've been in the 14th chapter uh, that is the end chapter of a section of scripture that is all about spiritual gifts. Remember, the apostle Paul in chapters 12, 13, and 14 is talking about spiritual gifts. He squeezes love in there, but love is within the context of spiritual gifts as well. We've done an in-depth study on spiritual gifts, looking at the reality that there are, there are spiritual gifts that we classify as offices as well as gifts, like an apostle was, I believe, an office. A pastor is an office. There are gifts that are individual, like the gift of giving, the gift of serving, and there are gifts that we would look at and classify as temporary and and permanent. And we would think that there are some gifts that we have said, like prophesying and tongues, that are temporary gifts. And there are gifts that are permanent, like being a pastor by giving and serving. And so if you're interested in that, I would encourage you to um, go back to our podcast and listen about the, with the detail of what we've done in 1 Corinthians 12, because we went into a lot of detail on that. And I just say that because as we come to our text, we're coming again to the 14th chapter where the Apostle Paul is, is basically giving us a lot of information regarding the theme, if you look on your sermon notes, of how the church operated, the early church operated, how spiritual gifts were being played out, and then I believe how that all will fit for us to have our Bible. And the emphasis that Paul uses within this chapter is on two gifts that we don't think are around anymore. He talks a lot about prophecy, and he talks a lot about tongues in this chapter. And we said that tongues was speaking in foreign languages, and I'm going to make that really clear again today. So even though we've talked about it in the past, you're going to have one of the best studies of this matter that I hope you can take and share and, and show some of your friends that are charismatic, and also just for you, once again, to have the peace and understanding of how we're biblically looking at this. And so we said tongues were speaking in foreign language. It is not some ecstatic speech. And we said that prophecy is a declaration from God. And it can deal with the future, but it also can deal with some proclamation of theological truth. Love, like you could talk about the Trinity. You could talk about end times. Prophets, as we went back and studied, did both. And anything that a prophet said was worthy to be included in the Bible. And we said that the church was built upon the apostles and the prophets, Acts chapter 2, and that when a prophet spoke based upon passages like Deuteronomy 18, he spoke with 100% accuracy. Today, when we're watching people who claim to have the gift of prophecy are saying that if God gives a prophet 50% accuracy, he's a good prophet. Well, that's foolishness, people. That is absolute foolishness. It doesn't stick with the consistency of God. Now, like I said last week, and I reiterate it again today, 
that when you look at this, I think one of the main reasons in the 14th chapter that the Apostle Paul wants to give us so so much information about two gifts that aren't in operation today is that these gifts, these gifts will have shown us that especially with prof, especially with tongues, is that we see a lot of pagan religions and we see a lot of false Christian religions using them today, and we can say, oh my, what they are doing doesn't fit with this 14th chapter. Even if the gift of tongues was still in operation today, whatever they're doing isn't consistent with the 14th chapter. Today, I thought about showing a video. I was going to put a video up on the screen of some different groups, pagan groups and Christian groups speaking in tongues. And I thought to myself, after I watched it, I felt uneasy. I felt queasy. I thought, man, what they're doing is just wrong. And it just gives me uh, a sick feeling. And in some sense, I do think it is a little demonic. And I thought, I just don't want to put that up here before you. And so... Uh, you, uh, I'm sure if you want to see and see some of these people speaking tongues, you just have to go on the YouTube. You can Google it, and before you know it, you can get all kinds of examples. And I'll share some of those as we go through this. But I thought this morning, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, some of you have told me about experiences that you have had, and I, I want you to um, realize that your thinking is correct in this sense when you've told me what you've seen and what you witnessed doesn't fit with what 1 Corinthians 14 says. So this is what we've already studied. What we've already gone through in the 14th chapter, what we've already gone through is that we've looked at 1 through 19, if you have on your sermons, the importance of prophecy over the gift of tongues. And that's why the words of the Bible are important. And so verse 5 was key. Prophecy was more important than tongues. And so go back and listen to that if you want more detail. But that was the emphasis of that point. And as we came here to 20 to 33, we're only through just a few verses. Some of them we're going to review. We're going to go a little bit deeper into 23, 24, and 25 this morning. But the whole point was the importance of knowing how tongues functioned in the church. The methodology of how it worked. So let me read verses 20 to 25. It says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Verse 21. In the law it is written by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. And so the focus is on how. The focus is on how. And he wants us to think things through. Remember verse 20. He doesn't want you to think like a child. He wants you not to think like a baby. And and so the exhortation is to think. Look at verse 20 again. Brethren, don't be children. Don't be patty, a word that was used for children that were infants to children that were teenagers. But I think with the emphasis later on, when he actually uses the word for babies, I think even makes it more... 
of an emphasis, don't be a baby in your thinking. And that's a hard thing. That's a challenge when someone tells you, look, don't be acting like a baby. And then the idea is he really wants you to think things through. And, you know, come off harsh. You know, if you have someone tell you you're thinking like a baby, it's sort of like a slap in the face. And the idea is that Paul has been trying to get this church to think things through, not to just be emotionally swept up in all of a sudden where all these people are trying to promote their spiritual gift. We've already known that the church has been dealing with arrogance. Back in chapter 3, he's told them not to act like babies. And so it comes off really hard. But it's good when if you take this and you listen and you start to think. Now, just again, to lighten the moat, I do have a little baby joke this morning, okay? Do you know babies are becoming more and more advanced in our day and age? Yep. So many babies used to cry when they needed their diapers changed. Not anymore. Babies are sending out P-mail. Mom, I need my diaper changed. Not email. P-mail. P-mail. Okay. That's not a bad joke. That's a good joke. Lightens the load. Verse 20. Brethren, don't be babies. I want you to think things through. Now, for those of you who weren't with us, act, he, he tells us in verse 21 a quote from Isaiah 28. And he says, in the law, but those of you who study your Bible say, wait a second, Isaiah isn't in the law. Isaiah is a prophet. But the thought that he brings up was, it was in Deuteronomy 28, that God said as he was getting the people ready to go back into the land, as he was giving final instructions to Moses, he said, listen, here's all these blessings, the lessons of the Mosaic Covenant, and here's all these curses. One of the curses is, if you don't get your act together and you're not faithful, I am going to send people to run over you, to capture you. And when you hear these people who don't speak your language, they speak in a foreign language, you will know that I have work to bring about this judgment. It was that concept that Isaiah was building upon. So it's, this is just one of the most fantastic quotes in the Bible, that when the Apostle Paul is bringing the theology from Deuteronomy, the theology from Isaiah, and he quotes that in verse 21, and he says, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. Even so, they will not listen to me. And it was very clear that the tongues was not some ecstatic speech, but it was a foreign language. You cannot go back to, to Isaiah 28 and think anything else. And how critical that is for us to grasp that, to have that understanding. So again, I'd encourage you, if you weren't here, listen to the podcast from last week. But the point is that we see in the very next line where the Apostle Paul says, so then tongues are for a sign. A sign. A sign. Okay? A sign is something that points beyond itself, all right? Remember in John chapter 2, the first sign that Jesus did? Every one of you should know that. 
the first sign that Jesus is recording of doing is turning water into wine. And th- th- when we talk about Jesus turning water into wine, it was a sign to say, this isn't just an ordinary man. Here's a man who has the ability to change nature. He can take something that's physical like water and turn it into wine. And it's a sign, it's an indicator that he is God. And there were seven signs that were in the first half of the book of John. They were all designed to show you something beyond what they, that, that the act did, okay? Well, what is the gift of tongues? People speaking in a foreign language, its primary purpose, its primary purpose was to be assigned to unbelievers. Unbelieving Jews primarily. You have to not note that. That's, that's what he's saying here. Now, again, th- there's a difference between a sign and a purpose. A sign is, its, is, the, is the emphasis of what it's about. I'm going to say a sign and its usage because th- th- it, tongues can be used amongst unbelievers, I mean believers, because how does he say it? So tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. So it's a sign to unbelievers, but did it have usage for believers? Absolutely, and we'll see that as we go on. All right, and, and so let's now take just a second, take some time, and let's watch this play out. This is what I wanted to add this week. Go back in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter two. Go back in your Bibles to the, to the first time that tongues appears and for those of you who still have physical bibles you might want to write above acts chapter 2 you might want to write it's 30 a.d Um, some people think that it could be 33 a.d i personally am of of the group that thinks this is the year 33 a.d and so if you're someone who thinks it's 32 a.d or 33 a.d you're, you're not going to be that far off. It's not going to significantly change my point and as we flow through this, um, this analysis. Um, but we just want to take um, an understanding. This is about 30 AD. We know this is 50 days after Jesus has been crucified. How do we know that? Because the day of Pentecost, that's what the feast was all about. The fact that it was 50 days after the Passover. And so at this time, Jesus has died, he's resurrected, he's ascended. The early church is waiting for, the early church is waiting for the, the Holy Spirit to come, and this is the day he comes. And at this point, we're gonna see people speak in tongues. And we're gonna go through this book of Acts, and the book of Acts is going to recount, the book of Acts is going to recount how the early church transitioned from a group that was um, a group of 12 men, 11 men, and then all of a sudden began to reach the world. It is going to show the transition, in essence, from also God working through Israel, now working through the church. It takes about 30 years to go through the book of Acts. You would think that if tongues was this incredible ecstatic speech, it was something that everyone in the church was using all the time and every day, and this was now the way to communicate to God, that the book of Acts would have maybe one reference in all 28 chapters. If you had to take a guess, how many times is the book of, in the book of Acts, how many times does tongues get used? And the answer is amazing. 
not even over 20, not even over 10. We're going to go through the book of Acts, and I want this to be emphasized. I want this to be something that you indelibly remember. It will only be used three times. Tongues is only used three times in the book of Acts. And every time, I want to make this clear, every time, what did Acts, I mean, 1 Corinthians 14 say? 1 Corinthians 14 said tongues was a sign not for believers, but to unbelievers. Unbelieving Jews, I said. Every time that tongues is used in the book of Acts, guess who's prominent? Unbelieving Jews are Jews. So look at Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven, verse 2 says, a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house, and they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested each, on each one of them. I believe, if the literal makes sense, seek no other sense, whatever this visible manifestation looked like, it looked like a little tongue in fire that was actually resting above their heads. There's nothing to indicate it was anything else, all right? And so there appeared of them, verse 3 says, and tongues distributed themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues. Okay, and this is just the word for, for tongues, but it's a word that we know is synonymous for other languages. And I was looking through a, a Greek um, dictionary and it basically it said one of the explanations was other languages and then it said for ecstatic speech. Now, maybe in pagans they were using this for ecstatic speech, but at this time there is no other reason to, to there's no reason to say this is now an ecstatic speech because it's gonna become very clear this is in the very first usage of this spiritual gift that we're talking about other languages. So verse five, now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when they heard the sound occurred, the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them were, was hearing this speech in his own language. The Greek word is dialect. They heard him their own dialect, their own language. Now it's very clear their own language. So if they were all speaking, you know, if the normal language was Hebrew and there were some people from all these different regions that are going to be listed, and maybe for us it would be like Russian or Spanish or something like that, they were hearing these people who would not ordinarily be able to speak in their language, speak in their own dialect. That's what you need to start. You need to understand this. Verse 6, and when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in their own language, own dialect. Verse seven, they were amazed and astounded. Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear them in our own dialect, okay, to which we were born? And then from verse nine down to verse 11, there's all these different languages that are nationalities that we get the implication that this is the different languages that they heard. Now, at this point, it's very clear to me, and to me, it, it, hoping it's clear to you, that the gift of tongues was the ability to speak in a foreign language that you didn't know how to speak in it. And these people are all amazed that these people are all speaking and they're hearing them in the different languages and they're amazed. Who are the people that are all around at the day of Pentecost? They're all Jews. This is, at this time, it's all Jews. Remember what 1 Corinthians 14 said. 1 Corinthians said, tongues are not a sign to believers, but to unbelievers. What did 
Isaiah 28 said, God said, when you hear these people speaking in a foreign language, foreign tongue, you'll know that you're being judged. And what God is announcing to Israel at this time is that basically God is transitioning from working from the, with the nation of Israel to now he's going to be working with the church. And we know that the Apostle Paul will elaborate upon this in, in Romans 9 to 11, how, the, how Israel's cut off. It's not that Israel doesn't have a future. It's very clear that Israel will be brought back. But right now, Isaiah, which is the reason Paul quoted it, is that God is saying, Israel, this is a judgment. And Joel will be quoted, and, and the idea is judgment, judgment, judgment. How in the world we go to ecstatic speech where some of you have told me that all of a sudden you are around these people who are speaking in tongues and they're praying over you and they're going into some mumble jumble or some way, somehow have something spiritual that you're lacking is something that you should never feel guilty about because the reality of this is, is, that, is that they are not doing what God wanted the gift of tongues to be. God wanted the gift of tongues as a sign to unbelievers that God was no longer working amongst the Jews. Now, you, 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 you at this point have something incredibly clear. Nowhere, 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 I get this right? Nowhere are we going to have an explanation now when we go to another chapter, we go to another place, that all of a sudden we have it turn into this ecstatic prayer language, which you have to understand. There are some good, conservative, charismatic theologians who say just exactly that. You can read some commentaries where they'll say, you know, in 1 Corinthians 12, it's very clear that the Apostle Paul was talking about the use of tongues as a foreign language, but when you get to chapter 14, he's talking about it as some ecstatic prayer language. And you say, where in the world do you get an explicit reference to that? And, and I'm just telling you, I just want you to feel comfortable to know they've made it up. There's nothing textual that gives you that inference. They are just reading that in. But the stronger biblical methodology is if you have something in what's called the doctrine of first usage, and you've got this first usage of them speaking in another language, a foreign language, until we get an explicit statement saying, well, wait a second, it's going to be something else now, then just stick with this. So Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, you've written, it's 3-0, it's 30 A.D., Jump over now to chapter 10. Chapter 10. Now, I always joke about this because you turn just a few chapters and maybe you think what has happened in Acts chapter 2 through 9 has just been a couple months. But you need to realize that biblical um, theologians believe seven years have taken place. Okay? So you want to write 737 A.D., and what, what, what is shocking in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, it's basically one event where the apostle Peter is taking the message for the first time to Gentiles. 
Now, it's hard for me at times to grasp because I think to myself, man, the church started and they started and they went out to the whole world, you know, as Acts chapter one said, you're gonna be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. You would think that they were just spreading out and immediately telling the entire world. But no, it's gonna take persecution and pushing and God prodding the Jewish people to start reaching the world. And amazingly, over seven years, you think about all the people that have lived and died that were Gentiles around the world that never heard the gospel. And you gotta believe that they went to hell if they didn't hear the truth. And, and, and yet, God is working in time and space, and time and space has happened, and, and so I've gotta accept that. But what I want you to realize is that from Acts chapter two to Acts chapter 10, we have not had any reference to tongues. Seven years have gone by, Peter is forced to go and talk to this Gentile named Cornelius, and there's a group of people that he is gonna preach to, and and Acts chapter 11 is gonna be the reporting of it. So Acts 10 and 11 is pivotal for your understanding as the transition of the church is now pushing out to reach Gentiles. This is when the big push to reach non-Jewish people occurs, Acts chapter 10. So you look over in Acts chapter 10, verse 44, and we'll pick up while Peter is speaking. And it says this, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. Verse 45, and the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed. Now, who are the circumcised believers? Well, we learn throughout the Bible, whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, especially like the book of Galatians, circumcision was for the Jews. It was another way at times, like especially in the book of Galatians, it references that the circumcised people are Jewish people. So you should say, verse 45, you can write a little note in your Bibles, we're talking about Jewish people. The emphasis is on Jewish people. Jewish people are the people who are amazed. Verse 45, as all the circumcised believers came with Peter were amazed. Why? Because they're hearing tongues. And, And what is tongues? 1 Corinthians 14, quoting Isaiah 18, says that tongues was a a sign of judgment on Israel that now Gentiles were going going to be used by God to reach the world, which quoted or referenced Deuteronomy 28. So here we have these circumcised believers, verse 45, they're amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured on the, out on the Gentiles also. Also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And you can just write, they were hearing them speak in foreign languages. That's it. They're, they're hearing them speak exalting God. Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse water for those to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to stay on for a few days. Acts chapter 11, Peter goes back to Jerusalem, and he reports what happened, how these people got saved who were Gentiles, but he doesn't even bring up tongues. Tongues isn't gonna be used. We just have to assume that it was indicative of of a a key moment when it was clear that God was moving amongst the Gentiles. So go over now to Acts 19. And so we we go from Acts chapter 10 and 11 to Acts 19, we're jumping 17 years ahead. It's about the year 54 AD. 
It, this is even before Paul will write 1 Corinthians. So we're 24 years away from Acts chapter 2. And we're seeing the gospel is moving out into the world. We're moving out into Asia. We're moving out into Europe. And here we pick up this account in Ephesus. The Ephesus that the, that the book of Ephesians is all about, the Ephesus that in the book of Revelation chapter 2, the church that lost its love at first. This is that Ephesus. So we pick up in Acts chapter 19. Again, it's 54 AD. 24 years later, we pick up and it says from Acts chapter 2, it says in verse 1, it happened that while, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. And he found some disciples, remember, disciplined learners. And verse 2, when he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now this is how, interestingly how God worked. Because if you didn't hear about this Holy Spirit, even though you are a believer in God, you needed to hear the completed message with Jesus Christ. Now, how do I know that? Because of what follows. Pick up in verse three. And he said, into what then were you baptized? All right, and they said, into John's baptism. It's implied John the Baptist. Where did John the Baptist minister? John the Baptist, we know from the description we have from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that John the Baptist only witnessed in Israel, baptizing people in the River Jordan. Some of you have been baptized in the River Jordan. Some of you put your feet in the River Jordan. It was the focus of John the Baptist's ministry. There is no report of him ever, ever leaving Israel that we know of, at least the surrounding area close to, to it. How did these people hear? Maybe one of them, maybe all of them, maybe they're going for a feast and, and they, got, they, they hear John's message, they believe it and they leave, but amazingly, they're not around to hear the message of Jesus. We don't know the full account of how it happened, but all they know is that they have heard John's message. And my inference is, is since they were baptized, because as Peter, Paul says, were we baptized or at least you know, um, influenced by this? And I'm thinking that they were physically baptized. To me, they would have gone into Israel been physically baptized, and now they're out in Ephesus, and they haven't, haven't heard about Jesus, which is mind-blowing because we're talking 24 years. They don't have email. They don't have internet. They don't have worldwide television telling them everything that's happened. It's been 24 years, people. That's just a fascinating note. So Paul says, John, verse 4, John baptized with the, with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is Jesus. And when they heard this, boom, because they're believers already in God, they believe and they turn and they place their faith in Jesus Christ. So verse five, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse six, and when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. So here, the two gifts that are, in 1 Corinthians 14, their tongues and their prophesying. Who are these people? I believe these are Jewish believers. Why do I think that? Look at what follows. Then they were, there were about, about 12 men, the next verse says. 
And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months. Three months. Where are they? In the Jewish synagogue. Reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, we know the Apostle Paul would say, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. His emphasis was always on the Jewish people in a community when he went somewhere. So verse 9, but when, but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil away before the people, he withdrew from them and took away who? The disciples. I believe it's the 12 men. I believe he's taken these Jewish men who were once in Israel, who spoke in tongues, who were listening and growing for three months, and he takes them, and then he goes into the school of Tyrrhenius. We don't know exactly what the school of Tyrrhenius was. We, we think it was like Paul was renting a schoolhouse out. Um, Tyrrhenius is a, was considered a Gentile name. They don't know anything about the school other than the fact that it's thought that he was perhaps just renting this place out as a, as a facility to use it to reach people. But the bottom line is, is that Paul takes these disciples who once heard John the Baptist and now are no longer going to be in the synagogue where they would have fit people who were speaking tongues. That's it, people. From this point on, 37, I mean, um, 54 AD, tongues is no longer going to be even used as a word in the book of Acts. My point is, is that here are the three occasions, Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19. If this was some great prayer language in which we needed it to communicate to God, you would think it would be everywhere. But every time it's used, Jewish people were prominent, which fits perfectly with 1 Corinthians 14. And if you'll turn back there, that was the whole purpose, what God says in verse 22. Tongues are not a sign for believers, but to unbelievers. Unbelieving Jews that God is no longer working primarily through the nation of Israel. He's working through the, through the church now. And so I watch on YouTube, and I watch these people go into some ecstatic, whoa, 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 and they, they mumble something out. Even if they try to do it with one person speaking and another person interpreting, never is it linguistically accurate that they are speaking in a known foreign language. What they're doing is hocus pocus gibberish and it's wrong. And, and you don't have to feel guilty. And I know what they're doing is fake because every time a known every time they should have been speaking in tongues, it should have been a proclamation of a language that was known, not something that's made up. And like I've said, people who are ling linguistic um, scholars have followed these people around, and they have found out that they've never spoken in a known language. So look at 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22 so tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers, unbelieving Jews. Isaiah 28, Deuteronomy 28 is what was basically inferred in the previous verse. But as 22 goes on, prophecy is not a sign. Uh, prophecy is a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Now, this is where I want to focus on usage because at this point, you would say, well, then prophecy wouldn't have any usage for an unbeliever. But the Apostle Paul is going to basically show how prophecy did have usage for the unbeliever because it's an unbeliever that gets converted in 24 and 25. So keep that in the back of your mind as we roll through this. So verse 23, therefore, okay, 
Therefore, in light of everything that I've just said to you, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and an ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are mad? Now, an ungifted person is a person that would be ignorant of the situation, an unlearned person. Basically, you know, you walk into a situation, you don't know what's happening. The unbeliever is just a way to emphasize that somebody that's not someone who has faith in Jesus Christ, faith in God. Won't they think that you're mad? Now, there's two ways you can interpret this verse. It's that everyone has come together and they're all speaking together at the same time which some of you have experienced, I've experienced, and it's crazy. I've been in charismatic churches. Everyone speaks in tongues. Thousand people, I've been in a group where 3,000 people speak in tongues, and it's absolutely maddening. And it's exactly what the Apostle Paul says. Won't you think they're mad? But there's also another way to take this verse, that they're all speaking one by one, but it doesn't matter if they're speaking a language that you don't understand. And there's a sense where that is also accurate in this text. And the reason I say that is because of what follows. Because he says, look, in verse 24, but if all prophesy, so if all prophesy, and maybe they're all speaking at the same time, but let's say that they're not. They're all, every person in a room of 3,000 people took one by one, and they all spoke with a prophecy, a proclamation. The difference between verse 22 and verse 23 is that you understand them there's no interpreter because if if you and i all we know is english and uh, and people get up and they speak russian and they speak greek and they speak french and they speak swahili and they just keep going and i don't know any of those languages it doesn't matter anything to me i'm just going to say i don't even know if you're speaking an accurate language you're going to sound mad to me but if you if 3,000 people get up and they all prophesy in English for my native language, that's what verse 24 could be about. So if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters who in essence understands that language, he is convicted. He is brought to conviction. He basically is, is somebody that is, is being told about his sin. And he is, he is called to account by all. So somehow, someway, whatever happened in verse 24, whether it was everybody was speaking at the same time or everyone was speaking in succession, the bottom line is, is that he was able to comprehend it, he was able to understand it, and he got convicted. And so the secrets of his heart are disclosed. He will fall on his face and he'll worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you because God worked to bring about his conversion. All this to say is when I look at this, I say to myself, okay, this is how the church was to function with tongues, how it did function. And to me, once I get a, a better understanding of this and I feel like, okay, this is how it works. When I hear about the pagans and how they operate, when I see how unbelieving um, our charismatic churches today operate, it is not with this procedure. And we'll get into more of the procedure next week. I truly believe what's going on with tongues today is what I said last week. With, you see in the modern pagan movement, you see it in the modern charismatic church movement, I believe some of it is demonically influenced. Just because these people get into a trance, it seems like they, that someone else has taken over their body. And that's why I didn't want to show videos about it this week, because I don't want to bring 
even demon videos into this church. These people, I think, are demonic. Why do I base that on? I believe the book of Ephesians tells me we're in a spiritual war and there are demons. And I believe demons are operative today. I believe that if God says earnestly desire a spiritual world, that I want to know about the spiritual world. I realize that there are spirits. First John chapter 4 t- talks about not testing teachers. What does he say? Test the spirits. Because spirits w- work in and through physical people. And I believe these people are demonically possessed, some of them. Second, I believe they're fakes. Because how do I know that? Because I've heard the confession of people who have faked it. They have said, when I was speaking in tongues, I lied. I made it up. I did it to trick people. And so we've talked about those confessions. People have faked it. And then third, we know that there are just some people that are Christians. Some of you might have spoken in tongues at once, and you've realized it wasn't because God was actually having you speak in a a tongue. It was just because you get caught up in the moment, and you can all of a sudden utter out some gibberish. And again, no one is ever who doesn't know French or German or Swahili is speaking in French and German and Swahili. They're just throwing out, you know, mumble-jumble stuff. And, 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 and that is just immaturity. And so this is what's happening in the modern church today. Why did God give us all this information? So that we knew and we know when we see it and we have to interact with it. Because tongues are not going anywhere, people. We're going to continue to have to deal with it. And you're not going to have to feel inferior. You're going to know what's happening. But remember, this entire section is so that ultimately, I hope, that you realize I've got a spiritual gift and am I using my spiritual gift? You only get a spiritual gift if you're born again. If you're not aware of what your spiritual gift is, you've got a problem. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 12 makes it clear, you get a spiritual gift. Every one of you has to be using your spiritual gift. We can be decrying tongues and we can be a church that says, okay, there's no tongues, there's no modern prophecy going on today. And I get that and I want to say that and I do say that, but at the same time, I know that you have a spiritual gift. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a gift, God's given it to you, It's like a superpower, and if you're not using it, woe to you when you give to account to God. He gave, I gave you this gift. I gave you this power. I gave you this so that you would be effective in the church body. What did you do with it? Oh, God, I didn't do anything with it. Well, then woe to you, because I I don't want to be like, I'm so critical of these people that are falsely using their gifts when I don't, at the same time, I want to be critical of us. If we have spiritual gifts, we need to be using them. And so as we get into a communion, I want to keep that in the back of your mind because the text is a challenge today that we are being faithful with, with being spiritually alive, and it would include clearly our gifts. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you for the challenge that you've given us in a long chapter. 1 Corinthians 14, God is a long chapter, and there's a lot for us to think through. But as we look at it, we get deeper and deeper into spiritual gifts. It's good for us to all know that spiritual gifts are important to you. You wanted everyone in the church to have it, but you also wanted us to know how they operate. And I pray, Lord, that today's helped us. And as we turn now to have communion, I pray, God, that we will be a church that really is challenging ourselves how faithful we are, how faithful we are to what you've provided, first in salvation and then second with our spiritual gift. 
I'm asking God that this is a great challenge time, a very fruitful time for us as a church. Because I know, God, this, this, these are challenges that you've laid out for the, for the church for all time. May it work in all of our hearts today to put us in more faithful position. Amen.